Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today, Mr. Mike Sullivan, co-founded Cubic Health in 2003. Cubic has built a proprietary clinical and analytics infrastructure focused on making employee health benefit plans more efficient and sustainable. Cubic's team includes data scientists, business intelligence experts, developers, and information systems professionals. Cubic's clients are primarily large and single multi-employer benefit plans ranging in size from 500 to 650,000 employee lives. 17 years after the founding of Cubic, there is still not another company in Canada in Cubic space, which for those of us concerned with mental health is alarming because it underlines how slow to change the group insurance industry has traditionally been, although as we will discuss today, there is huge potential for change, especially as it pertains to the reallocation of resources for the treatment of mental illness. Cubic's focus as an independent benefit plan, analytics, and clinical solutions company is at the intersection points of Mike's background as a pharmacist and his postgraduate studies in finance. A frequent speaker across North America on benefit plan design and management, Mike has also appeared on CBC, BNN, and in the Global Mail. He is a regular columnist for Benefits Canada magazine and serves as an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto. Okay, Mr. Mike Sullivan, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Pete. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have this uh, conversation. And I think before we jump into the actual discussion, uh, I think for the listener, it's important to be transparent and point out that, you know, we've been lifelong friends and that I've been really privileged to have a front row seat for the Cubic Health journey from, from day one. Uh, Mike, I think the audience is going to be benefiting tremendously from your incredibly unique perspective on the group insurance industry. The story here to me is absolutely fascinating. And uh, I can pretty much guarantee that there will be more than a few mind-blowing moments with respect to the scale and scope of some of the challenges that are internal to the industry itself, but also with respect to implications for the treatment of, uh, of mental health. Uh, many of the listeners, both clinicians and mental health consumers, will certainly be no stranger to the challenges of dealing with insurance carriers. Uh, I'm really hoping that today we can shed some light on how this industry is structured, how it works, where the incentives lie, where some of the challenges are, as well as where uh, some of the solutions are on the horizon. So, Mike, I guess before we begin our discussion of the group insurance industry, I was wondering if you could walk us through how you came to conceptualize and ultimately co-found Cubic Health. Well, yes, listen, thanks for the question. And, and I'm remarking on your comment before about the lifelong friendship. I, I do think it would be really great if some of our teachers from elementary school ever had a chance to uh, hear the podcast. <laughs> they might feel better about it. I don't think they ever saw us in this position once upon a time. Uh, but listen, thanks for the question. In terms of some context, and this is, I hope, meaningful context for the audience, both clinicians and and uh, and, and members and, and clients uh, and consumers, that when... I graduated uh, pharmacy school and I started my career in pharmacy and keeping in mind, I'm a second generation pharmacist. So I thought I, I thought I knew all there was to know about pharmacy and, and, and drug plans and, and how people make claims and things like that. And so all of a sudden I show up and, and I'm, I'm working and I see these people coming in and, and, and they have the complete, they're completely price insensitive when you look at the price of the prescription, you say, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen here? How am I going to have this conversation that their medication is going to cost $300? And they'll say, oh, no, it's no problem at all. I just submitted it into my insurance company. Or they came in with these little credit cards. I mean, keep in mind, this is 20 years ago. They would come in with these credit card size, you know, cards to say, hey, listen, just bill it through this plan. And, and I would stop there. So 
who are these benevolent organizations that are just paying for these drug benefits for everybody who comes in? And by the way, why are they paying for these specific drugs, which number one, aren't even the most appropriate option for this individual. And number two, are substantially more expensive. So how come nobody's asking those questions? So that's when the seed got planted. And it wasn't until shortly thereafter that I realized, wait a second, it's not these benevolent insurance companies that are paying for this. It's actually employers who are paying for it or you know, group insurance, which is typically either employers or association plans uh, or, or union-based plans. And that's when the light bulb went off. I thought, hold on a second. And this was just before the beginning of the specialty drug era of really expensive therapies. And I thought, if people don't have any understanding about what's happening with these claims, how are these plans going to become sustainable? And that started a 20 plus year journey into the world of group insurance. And I have to tell you, uh, it's been a, uh, you referenced it a little bit in your preamble. It's been a very interesting journey for sure. And I'm hoping that for the audience, some of the light bulbs will go off as well about why things are structured the way they are and, and where there's some rooms to make, you know, where there's room to make change. So, Mike, when you're when you're chatting with someone in an elevator, let's say the proverbial elevator, how do you describe the cubic model or how do you describe what cubic health does on a day to day basis for your clients? It's my biggest issue. Twenty, you know, almost 20 years later, I still don't have an elevator pitch. Uh, maybe that's part of the problem. But the real the real issue, Pete, is that there isn't any other company that does exactly what we do in, in the space in Canada. And so a lot of what we have to do initially is actually educate people about well, what is, sorry, what is group insurance and, and group benefits? And people don't have any understanding that this is a $35 billion a year industry in Canada. It flies completely under the radar. Everybody who works is, oh, I've got benefits through my work. And that's where the question, and that's where the statement stops. And they don't ask any more questions. They don't really, most people don't have a good read on what their own benefits are in their own place of work. And so, I don't know too many other industries in Canada that have this much money flowing through it every year that literally impact, you know, let's call it minimum 70 to 75% of the Canadian population and nobody asks any questions. So the elevator pitch, we get to the top of the ride before I even explain what group insurance is. But for the listener here, and just for some context, I would say that what we're trying to do is we're trying to work with benefit plans and on behalf of the plan and behalf of the members of the plan to optimize the experience, to ensure these plans are sustainable moving forward and to try to avoid uh, erosion of the plans. The worst thing, Pete, that we see are plans that used to have 100% coverage or very generous coverage for plans. And then all of a sudden they've been poorly managed and they have to start either stopping coverage or they have to limit coverage or they have to push more costs on the people. That's the worst case scenario. So the short answer to your question is our job is around optimizing benefit plans for everybody's benefit. So Mike, you and I have had a lot of different conversations around, you know, the kind of work that you do. I've shared some of the perspectives that I have as a, as a clinician in private practice, just to level set for the audience, Mike, can you describe for the listener, the basic definitions of each of the major elements that are present within the group insurance industry? I must admit that even for me as a clinician who works in this, in this space sort of day to day, there's a lot of mystery to me about all the moving parts and how they fit together. I hear terms like sponsor, carrier, members, vendor, broker, et cetera. Um, can you define maybe these terms for the listener? Because we're probably going to end up referring back to them quite a bit. And then maybe elaborate how they all kind of relate or or move in concert with one another. 
Perfect. So the, and that's a great place to start because it took me a while to figure this out. And, uh, and I also reflect on the fact that most of my classmates from pharmacy school still don't really understand how this whole market works, even though they intersect with it every day. So I appreciate your question and your comment about that. Uh, first of all, most, most plan members, if I'm using the term plan member, I'm, I'm, I mean, the individual within a plan. So the individual who is, who's using benefits. So the plan member, most plan members don't have any understanding about who's actually funding the benefit and that whether that's the employer or the association plan they belong to or their union. Uh, and a lot of people look at benefits as being, well, this is the insurance company, but the insurance company is on the health benefits side is just an administrator. They're not doing anything of any consequence in most cases. So insurance companies will provide insured benefits like life insurance and disability so that if you're disabled and you can't work, they'll pay the benefit for you or, you know, God forbid there's a tragedy and someone passes away, then there's a life insurance benefit paid. Those are, those are insured benefits. But health benefits, drugs, paramedical benefits, extended health, um, psychological services, all of the things that fall in that realm are effectively just cash flow benefits. They're administered by an insurance company, but they're paid for directly by the employer or by the union plan or by the association plan. So the plan sponsor means the employer. Or, or for those of you, the lowest listeners that belong to a union plan or, or an association plan, it would be that plan. But let's, for the sake of ease, let's just talk about employers. So it would be the employer plan. So the plan sponsor is the employer. They're the one paying the majority of the cost. The, the, the carrier or the insurance carrier, that's the company that's in the middle just administering the benefits. So you, 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 you walk in and, and seek services at OICBT and you submit, the, you submit the claim in. You submit that claim into the insurance company or the carrier, but they're just the administrator pushing the paper around uh, and paying the claim. They're not, there's no underwriting, there's no insurance of these benefits because the employer basically pays for what they use. And if they're paying a premium and the claims exceed premium, the next year their premiums go up. And if you're a larger employer, you're, we're what we call self-insured, meaning you just pay the bills, whatever they are. You don't pay any premiums, you just pay the bills plus you know, administrative and profit charges on top of it. So you've got the plan member, you've got the plan sponsor, You've got the insurance carrier, who's the, the intermediary. Then you have the health service provider, which would be, or the vendor, which would be, you know, the pharmacy, um, OICBT, uh, massage, physio, dental, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you'll have somebody in the middle who's the advisor. And that advisor is typically the person who's going to find a home for which insurance company these benefits go with. Now, that's where it gets kind of gray and murky because the advisors are working a you know, obsessively, they're supposed to be working on behalf of the, the customer. But the problem with this industry is that the advisors get paid by the insurance carriers. So the challenge is, is that, yeah, they're supposed to be representing the interest of the plan. But if they're being paid through commissions and bonuses by the insurance carriers, that makes it very difficult. There are some excellent advisors out there, don't get me wrong. But it's, it, that's where the model starts to break down. So a lot of people think, Oh, you know, Manulife, Canada Life, um, Sun Life, Blue Cross, you know, the, the, these are, these are the, the, the group insurance stakeholders. These are the people that control my benefits, but that's not the case. Um, they're the ones just administering the health benefit. 
And Mike, just as a follow-up question, how are those relationships governed between the carrier and the sponsor? Are there contracts that lay out the way in which those services are to be administered? How much leeway does the carrier have around sort of audibles on the field, right? Like making judgment calls around difficult issues that may come across their desk. Oh, well, you're talking about the most risk-averse industry in the entire world, insurance. And so absolutely, everything has got contracts associated with it. If you're a self-insured plan, meaning you're the one who's just using the insurance company to um, to process the claim and whatever the claims happen to be that week or that month, you pay the bill plus the profit charges, you can have a little bit more flexibility to say, hold on a second, make an exception and pay for this or, hey, do this. If you're a smaller employer and you're paying a premium every month to the insurance company, you're getting just off the shelf products and you don't really have any flexibility at all. You have to sort of take what's handed to you and absolutely everything is governed by it. But your question reminds me of something interesting too, which I can't believe this flies under the radar. Again, it's a $35 billion a year industry in Canada and there's absolutely no requirement for disclosure of compensation. Isn't that crazy? If you buy a mutual fund, you have, you, you know, you have to be disclosed. Once upon a time, they didn't tell you what the fees were, but now they do. There's to be a total transparency about, you know, front end fees and trailer fees and things like that and management fees and financial services. But for some reason, this $35 billion bubble of money every year is exempt from that. And there is no compensation disclosure. So any bonuses and things like that that are paid to advisors from insurance companies aren't disclosed. They don't have to be disclosed. And in, it, the, the full fee payment is not always disclosed either. And in fact, the advisory community was successful in pushing back against efforts a couple of years ago for disclosure around compensation. If you can believe that, it's 2020 and we still don't have compensation disclosure. So it's a really strange world. And that's why so much of the power has traditionally stayed with the insurance company because the advisors don't want to push because that's the hand that feeds them. The employers or the union plans or the association plans are relying on, on, on advisory services. They're, they're relying on their advice. Hey, you should be doing this. Hey, you should be doing that. Um, but a lot of times that doesn't happen because it's been a really smooth ride for everybody. So what's the, so what for your audience? The, so what is that, the reason why psychological services and mental health services and how they're funded and how they're uh, and how they're designed, how these plans are designed hasn't really changed and is still in the dark ages is because it's not in anybody's financial interest to be making a lot of changes. And we'll get into that a bit deeper in the conversation, I'm sure. But it's important that everybody knows um, that that's there. There are so many structural defects in this industry. But the, and that's that's the glass half empty. The glass half full is they don't need to be. Um, once you've shed the once you shine the light on these problems, there are actually solutions. So the good news is, and I think the reason why we're having this conversation, Pete, is that there are solutions. Uh, there are ways to do things differently. That understanding and awareness just has to be more widely disseminated. People have to know what to ask for. 
Mike, there's just one more technical piece that I want to go over to make sure that we've got all the, the sort of terms and conditions on the table for the discussion. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, I practice here in Ottawa, there's a lot of public servants that would be sort of surprised to learn that their insurance is not actually through quote unquote Sun Life. It, it's, it's that there's a federal public service plan that is actually you know, funding their insurance. Uh, Mike, can you speak a little bit more about the difference between self-funded plans versus more of these sort of quote unquote off the shelf solutions that you referred to? And then I'd be interested to know, to know too, when are the, what are the kind of conditions under which a company might map themselves onto a self-funded model versus more of an off the shelf uh, kind of model? That's a great question. So Cubic is a small employer. There's 30 of us here at Cubic, give or take. And so we, 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 we have to buy traditional benefits. We don't have a choice. So we're not big enough to command any, any special consideration. So we have to go like any other employer and either decide to have um, healthcare spending accounts that give people some flexibility in terms of what they spend their money on and traditional benefits. But we just have to go buy off the shelf because we're small. And, you know, Canada is built on a bedrock of small and medium sized businesses. And there's lots, there's tens of thousands of them across the country. So, so that we just go and buy off the shelf and we get the traditional benefits. Plus, we can augment them with some healthcare spending accounts and various different things like that. But any employer or any association plan that, say, is under maybe 150 to 200 employees is almost always going to be buying off the shelf products that the insurance company has total control over. Now, again, if you're spending on health benefits, including psychological services, drug, dental, et cetera, if your spending exceeds those premiums, then your premiums go up and you pay the difference the next year. So you don't get anything for free. But, but again, it's not like insured benefits where you pay a premium, you hope you never have to use it. The insurance companies knows you're using this every year. And so they just tailor, they want to see more use of some of these benefits to be able to increase the premium. So larger self-insured plans and, and for the audience and for the listeners, if I use the term ASO, uh, which stands for administrative services only. Sometimes I get caught saying that when in, in using jargon. So an ASO plan or a self-insured plan, they are plans that are typically large in size. That's it. There's nothing fancy about them. It doesn't mean they have to be in a specific industry. It's just they're big enough to say, hey, listen, we don't want to pay premiums because we're worried the premiums might be too high. We just want to pay what we, what we use and that's it. So, you know, a perfect example would be an ASO plan is a plan that orders off the menu and orders what they want a la carte and they pay for it. But a, a, a smaller group that buying off the shelf is effectively going to the buffet, right? That we're, you know, you're paying a, you're paying a flat cover charge to go to the buffet. And if your group happens to eat more than they expected, then next time you come back, the, the fees have gone up um, and you pay more next time you want to go to the buffet, but you don't have a lot of choice about selecting specific elements. So the larger the plans are, the more, the more power they have to customize, but eat, that is the biggest disappointment of, of my career to date in this industry is that we tend to deal with bigger plans. Uh, but the, a lot of large plans in this country have not taken advantage of their size to customize their design. So when I think about a group like the Federal Public Service Healthcare Plan, that's the biggest employer-sponsored plan in the country. 
they have unbelievable ability to be able to um, flexibly design their benefits and so do others. And so I, I would say that there's a greater awareness today amongst big plans that hold on a second, just because we've been given a recommended plan design, who is that best serving? Is it best serving the financial needs of the stakeholders or is it actually better serving our members? And so really what I'm hoping for, and this I intended to be a very positive conversation is that when people realize, wait a second, uh, we can do better with our designs and we can actually build better plans that are more sustainable and help improve people's health. That should be the end goal for everybody. You know, Mike, just to pick up on some of the themes that you've been introducing so far, actually, just to back up even more, have you, uh, I believe you've read the book, Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me? Yes, I have. Phenomenal book, right? Talks about uh, cognitive dissonance, self-justification, things like that. Just amazing themes. Uh, and it just shows how humans can get so far off the path and just keep justifying and justifying and justifying, you know, they're getting lost in the woods, right? Absolutely. From that lens, Mike, you know, what observations have you and the Cubic team had around how the insurance industry works? What kind of cognitive dissonance or self-justification is going on there that keeps the model stuck uh, in a place where it's not optimized to the place that it, that it perhaps could be? Well, the easiest answer to that question, and it's an excellent question, is insurance carriers and all the stakeholders connected to them make more money the more that flows through benefit plans. Full stop. And so that so there's no interest in ensuring that the use of benefits is efficient or optimized because that takes work and it takes effort. And the easiest path to fulfilling a mandate is to automate it. So if you get everybody just taking off the shelf benefits and everybody is 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 doing exactly the same thing, then you don't have to worry about customizing. You don't have any more additional cost or effort that's put into it. And, and, and then, then you use that to say, well, you know, gee, everybody else is doing it this way. So you really want to do it too. You don't want to be different, do you? Uh, you know, you don't want to get any pushback, do you? And so you sort of use the groupthink mentality to sort of, you know, to keep the status quo. But the status quo is only being, is only being recommended for self-interest purposes, right? If everybody was actually being realistic here, they'd say, there's a lot of money flowing through employee benefits, $35 billion a year. We don't need to add any more money into the system, Pete. There's lots and lots of money there. What we need to do is allocate that money appropriately and have the right designs to ensure that money's being used efficiently and effectively. That's what we need to do. But those, those efforts aren't undertaken to a wide, widespread degree because that takes time and effort and cost and investment when it's just easier to say, well, we've always done it this way and we can just keep renewing these plans every year. So the issue becomes, let's have as much flow through the plans as we can in the name of health and employee health. And then when somebody tries to turn the tap off or make changes, let's sort of say, well, no, 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 you can't do that because we wanna make sure everybody's healthy. But what you're really saying is, no, no, we don't want you doing anything differently because that's going to cost us money and it's going to take effort and we don't want to do that. So there's an effort to try to protect the status quo at all costs and rationalize it by saying, well, you know, this is the industry standard or this is what everybody's doing. And so change is rationalized away 
saying, oh, no, no, trust me, this is this is in your best interest. <laughs> Whose interest is it best? That's the question, right? That's that's the big issue here. And the other thing I'll say to that point is this industry, this industry is built on nursery rhymes. So there are all sorts of legends in group insurance that have been propagated down through generations of people working in this industry that have no basis in reality. And they just get perpetuated by people on the food chain because insurance companies are organizations that have, you know, 15 layers of bureaucracy, right? So everybody at different layers of the organization hears a story and they hear the story and they tell the story and retell the story. And then you get to the end of the day and everybody goes on believing that things are a certain way for a certain reason, but that's not actually the case. Um, and, and no one's ever thought, no one sort of critically said, well, hold on a second. Do we, do we, do we actually know that to be true? So there's a lot of trying to protect pushing claims through here only out of economic self-interest and not out of thinking about the health, physical and mental of Canadians. And that's where I really get frustrated because honestly, Pete, with that kind of money, tens of billions of dollars a year of employer sponsored and, and employee sponsored because employees have cost involved too. benefit. Like we should be doing better. There's lots of money in the system we just need to do a better job allocating it. Those are such great points, Mike. You know, I, I want to make the point that in clinical psychology, we are plagued by some of those same issues. I think any human endeavor is plagued by this folklore that gets baked into the, the space or the culture over time. Findings which are just taken to be true. But when you go back and look at the original findings, it's like, wait a second, they weren't saying that at all. It might have been convenient to, to believe an extension of what they found and it gets propagated and so on and so forth. The other thing I want to ask you, Mike, I mean, is it fair to say, this is just sort of my layman's interpretation of it, but is it fair to say that this industry is more concerned with activity than it is outcome, just because, because of some of the ways that incentives are set up within the system? There's no capacity in this industry to measure outcome. There's none. There's absolutely none. So the only incentive is just ensuring the inputs keep rolling and that's it. And that's the biggest shame is that when we do work with our plans and our clients, Pete, we sit on millions of rows of transactional data. The data is all de-identified, so we're not, we're not getting into people's personal information, but that's not the intent. The intent is to help improve the efficiency of the plan and ensure everything is, is working the way it's supposed to be working. Um, and to do predictive work to understand where things are going. There is so much rich data in this space to measure outcomes, to improve people's health, physical and mental, and none of it gets used. It all gets stuck in silos and nobody touches it. And that's one of the most heartbreaking pieces of it. And that's where, if there's one thing I'd like the audience to take away is that there is so much opportunity here to focus on outcomes, to measure outcomes and do it in a very thoughtful and respectful way that doesn't impede on people's privacy. That's going to help to make some of these plan changes and some of these interventions sustainable and have returns. So that's my biggest frustration. It's so easy to keep money pumping into the system. And, 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 and keep saying, Hey, we need, we know we need to have these plans. We need to do this. We need to do that. But it's so much harder to measure outcomes. And then it's harder to sit down and look in the mirror and say, oh, boy, 
these plan designs that we've built and evolved over the years actually are completely broken. That takes a pretty strong sense of leadership to admit that, wait a second, we, we have to throw this all out and start over again, or the vast majority would have to start over. And that sort of, that sort of outside of the box thinking to use a horrible cliche is, is not in high supply in this industry, which is really disappointing because like I keep going back to it and I think I've said it about five or six times, but I want to drive home the message. There are not that many industries in Canada that are worth $35 billion a year. And there are none that operate with such little sophistication or to this this degree that happens in this space. And that's not intended to be a negative comment or a hopeless comment. It's intended to be a hopeful comment to say, oh boy, so now if we take some of those resources and design things properly, think about what we could do, right? That, that's, that's really the message I, 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 the message I would want people to leave this conversation with. Mike, in a universe of uh, infinite resources, maybe we could you know, divest ourselves about caring about outcomes. However, I'm guessing for the plan sponsor, given some of the trends that you've talked to me about and some of the escalation of costs, uh, especially with respect to mental illness, um, do you have a sense that outcomes are slowly becoming more on the radar for these folks? It doesn't seem like anyone managing these plans would have the luxury of ignoring outcomes given the escalation of in trends of disability. And again, specifically with respect to mental illness. I would say to answer your question, Pete, the, the realization is setting in when people are reflecting on the money. And I keep going back to the money, but the money is the scorecard that helps everybody realize, oh, we need to do something different. So in the last decade, the amount of investment in employee benefits has increased by 60% in 10 years. And the population growth in our country has been probably somewhere closer to 10% in that time. So the growth in spending has so far outpaced inflation and CPI. And rightfully, a lot of plants are looking at this and saying, wait a second, we're spending 50% more, 60% more than we did 10 years ago, but our people aren't 60% healthier. You know, we're actually less healthy than what we were before. What's going on? How come we're throwing so much money into this, into this well, and we're not getting anything more out of it. And so there's really an understanding that, uh Oh, like we can't just keep doing this because we're going to hit a breaking point. I would say to your question where we get the most traction where people where people really start to say, "Uh oh, we need to make this a priority, is the work that we do around predictive analytics and financially projecting where plans are gonna be in 12, 24 and 36 months based on the underlying disease state and demographic profile of the group and their plan design. And again, this is all using de-identified data. So we're not, we're not harvesting people's personal information to do this, but there's a plan, Pete, in your backyard in Ottawa And um, it's a large enough plan. There's thousands of people in the plan and they are, there's a fixed envelope of money that goes into fund benefits. When we did our first set of predictive analytics for them about a year and a half ago, we couldn't believe what we saw. Their plan spending in the next three years was predicted to go up by 43%. 
over the first over a three year period, 43%. And in the first year, we told them that their plant spending was going to go up by 20.5% or so. And we effectively got laughed out of the room. And they sort of just said, <laughs> okay, thanks guys. I think maybe something's wrong with your machine. And that was sort of the end of the conversation. Well, lo and behold, guess what happened? Their plan spending didn't increase by 20.5% the next year. It increased by 21.1%. So we're actually slightly off to the lower end of things. And that's when I think it hit them. Wait a second here. Like, they were right. Like This is only going to keep going. And they have to really get serious about, we got to do something. Because I think they just laughed it off to be like, how could, how could a plan this size grow by 20% in one year? You, you don't know what you're talking about. And what we're saying to people is when you're only managing your plan by looking in the rearview mirror, you're not going to see what's coming ahead of you, right? And you're not going to understand the impact and what that's going to mean. And so when we show people, Pete, what will happen to their plans in the absence of any change, it's not always that dramatic, thankfully. But in cases where it is, that tends to be what gets them motivated to make a change is that they realize, okay, this, this can't, this can't continue at this rate. Mike, do you have any sort of a a lens that you can speak to around the overall health of Canadians? Like what kind of trends are you seeing? How healthy are we as a population, as a function of the cubic lens on all this aggregated de-identified data? What are you seeing? It's hard to generalize for the whole population. Uh, But I would tell you that as a pharmacist, I cannot believe the rate of utilization of prescription medication in this country. I can't believe it. But it is it's skyrocketing and it doesn't seem to be any end to it. And, you know, you and I have had this conversation many, many times over the years you know, just because I'm a pharmacist, I'm not, I'm not sitting here beating the drum for people to be medicating themselves pharmacologically if they've got mental health related issues. In a number of situations, that's probably not appropriate initial therapy. There may be obviously cases where organically there is obviously a need and there's a severity to it. But I can only tell you that I am, I'm literally blown away at, at how, how, how unhealthy the, the population is. I'm also shocked at the, the, the incredible growth in the rate of disability. It's, it's to the point where I don't know why this is not at the top of Canada's economic policy list of discussion points. If we take a look at the rate of disability in, and especially in knowledge-based industries uh, where, you know, our economy has really been based on that heavily in the recent years, it's incredible. And, and it's, it's a real concern. So if we think about how does Canada going to dig itself out of this financial hole that we're creating in trying to deal with, with the pandemic? And by the way, I think, I think largely we're doing a lot of good things and we do need to be supporting people. But boy, the... Pete, I'm really concerned. I'm concerned that the health of, of the population is not very good. I'm concerned at the rates of absence disability and the growth that we're seeing. And, and I'm concerned about people. And I really think there are people that are in bad situations. And, uh, and my biggest fear is that we keep pouring money 
into group insurance and employee benefits in areas where it's not making a difference. And we're not going to have the money available for where it does need to make a difference. But it's it, it's it's pretty shocking to see the growth. And it's and, and the other thing I would say to that point. As a parent and you and I both have young children. Um, well, yours, yours aren't so young anymore, uh, but it's it's heartbreaking to see the amount of chronic medication use in 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 a pediatric population. It's really, really unbelievable that we're at a point where there's that much use, especially in the realm of mental health. Um, it's, it's, it's devastating. We need to make this the number one issue um, economically in the country to say, if we don't help the next generation of workers and Canadians um, with their mental health, for example, uh, because it tends to be more mental at that age than it is physical for obvious reasons, uh, I'm just, I, I'm concerned we're not going to have the kind of productivity as a nation that we need to have to be economically viable. So I'm glad you asked the question, but I, I, I'm just, I'm so concerned. And now, and seeing this data day after day after day, I even, I even find it when I'm dropping my kids off at school. You sort of looking around, you're sensitive to children that are struggling. You're sensitive to all of the, all of what we're seeing. And it's, um, it, it's really tough. Mike, just to put an even finer point on this issue, I was wondering if you're able to, to speak to what kind of patterns you might be aware of with respect to the use of psychotherapy, uh, prescription patterns around antidepressants, anxiolytics. How would you paint the picture of what's going on in the Canadian population and both statically as well as sort of looking at a trend line? Well, that's been one of the most interesting things, Pete, that everybody has sort of got this idea that oh, the use of antidepressants is way down because if we look at our spending, we're noticing that you know depression isn't that big a deal anymore compared to where it used to be. But people don't realize, hold on a second, you're thinking back to 2010 or you're thinking back even earlier where the, some of the biggest drugs in the country at the time were uh, it's, uh, Paxil and Ciprolex and drugs like that that, were, that still had their patents, so there was no generics. And that was back before we saw this explosion of high cost specialty drug therapy that cost 20,000, 25, 30,000 a year. And the evolution of what we call the orphan drug, the ultra high cost orphan drug for rare disorders market, where these therapies cost, you know, $300,000 a year to treat somebody who's got um, cystic fibrosis, for example. So this is before then. And if, if you know, the average cost, the, at the average daily cost was say $2 a day plus for an antidepressant, that was a bigger issue. But now that we've seen all the big antidepressants, um, you know, paroxetine and citalopram, nescitalopram, and all of them, and, and well, well, butrin, bupropion, all these, all these different products have been generic for some time now, and generic drug prices have been regulated down over the last nine years. So now generic drug prices are basically one quarter of what they were in 2010. So you're seeing that knock-on effect of drug goes and loses its patent, drugs now generic and generic prices have lowered. So now the cost of these, these therapies is dropping off the page. So people aren't flagging them. And the cost to give somebody an anxiolytic therapy uh, is two cents a day. So you're never going to see claims for Ativan. Um, those claims don't, they, they don't show up 
on the on, on any trend report because they cost pennies. And so nobody sees them. And so if they doesn't if it doesn't make a financial impact, most people don't tend to see them when they're looking at their their annual benefits renewal to say, well, where are we spending our, our money? They don't flag on these lists. But we're seeing we're seeing a very steady diet of growth in the use of antidepressants. But the, but it's just not reflective of the cost inside the benefit plans. But that growth continues to be strong. But I would tell you where I'm most concerned is the use of stimulants. The use of stimulants to treat ADHD is literally off the charts. Outside of specialty therapies for really catastrophic disease and, di- and type 2 diabetes, it is the next biggest area of growth and cost. It's unbelievable. And the use of stimulants, Pete, isn't just restricted to children. We're seeing it used in working, the working class. Uh, maybe, who knows? I'm saying this kind of tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but I guess it's a bit of a performance-enhancing drug these days when you've got people trying to juggle so many different things and trying to get through days and get through weeks. Um, you know, people are, are busier than ever. Uh, but we're also seeing it in uh, senior populations. It's incredible. So the use of these stimulants, which are, you know, amphetamine based, is, is, is incredible. Um, and and it, again, it doesn't get talked about. And so what we're seeing is people are, people are talking about mental health more openly now. And there's a lot more access to and a lot more awareness of programs and things like that, which is great. Maybe the access is still a challenge, um, as you've helped inform me over the years. But, but what we're not talking about is the the incredible use of of drug therapies in in mental health in particular that I would suggest is far from evidence based. Oh, Mike, that's such an interesting observation. It would really echo what I think a lot of us see clinically where every man and his dog is coming in with a prescription for Vyvanse. We see a lot in depression, actually, where people have sort of those that kind of neurovegetative kind of presentation where they feel slowed down and not a lot of mo- motivation. Like, of course, taking pharmaceutical cocaine is going to improve that situation uh, temporarily, but it's not clear as to whether it ultimately precipitate some sort of actual clinical long-term sustained uh, improvement. It's really quite uh, disconcerting and, um, and, and very, very concerning. I mean, I do really feel there's a role for them in certain limited cases, but the broadband use of these stimulants is, uh, is, is just something else. It's, it's absolutely amazing to see the evolution of this. It's, and the other point that as you're talking that came to mind too, is it's unbelievable to see the long-term use of sedatives to treat sleep disorders. And, you know, these therapies that should only be used for maybe two weeks maximum, maybe, um, are being dependent and used by people of all ages. Uh, and it's once, once your sleep gets habituated to that, it's a real tough time, uh, you know, coming off. Right. And, and so you're, you're right on the money. And I think, but it's part of the easy fix that we're all going for, right? That we, we and it's it's getting worse. Uh, and, and the long-term implications are really serious. But you're onto something really interesting here. And this is where, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, wh- why does Cubic, like we do, we do a lot of work managing complex high-cost drug claims uh, with our pharmacy team. And people say, well, you know, wh- why do you, why do you get involved doing that? Or why would you be, you know, questioning some of the decisions that are made by a specialist? And what we say is, hold on a second. You know, if, if someone's not using a thoughtful evidence-based approach, 
why would you want to be putting yourself on an incredibly potent immune suppressing drug that a specialty agent, um, especially one that might be intravenously infused, that, you know, to try to deal with something, if you haven't sort of looked at other modalities first, you haven't followed the evidence, there's a lot of potential risk. And I don't think people think about that, right? We see a massive spike in the use of expensive specialty drugs to treat psoriasis. Now, some severe psoriasis makes a lot of sense, but that's not the case in many situations that we're seeing these things being, being prescribed for. Why would you want to be giving somebody a massive immune suppressing drug and all the risks that go with that if the benefit is going to be relatively modest? Um, and it's, and that's a physical health condition equivalent to the mental health piece, which is, you know, it might be an instant relief for someone to be using a sedative for sleep, to be using a stimulant for, uh, to dealing with, with mood issues and, or, and, or focus issues, things like that. But the dependency on that long-term, there's a lot of downside that we don't talk about. And it's really, really disappointing. The, the, the first thing I remember learning in pharmacy school the very first class I ever had, they said, you have to understand that even if you take Tylenol, you're putting a foreign substance into your body, any drug is potentially dangerous. And you really need to think about the cost benefit in terms of not the financial cost, but the health cost and the health benefit of some of the safety risks versus the benefit. And sometimes, Pete, I don't think we're doing a very good job of assessing that. So, Mike, I appreciate it might be a bit awkward for you to bring it up personally, but I'm very much aware of the facet model that Cubic's been able to develop. It's It's been really, really fascinating for me to hear about the process that you have around this. You know, Mike, for the listener, I think they would be likewise really interested to hear about how facet works and uh, and to hear about the kind of, you know, the kind of innovation that you're trying to bring around oversight to administration of these really potentially um, uh, consequential compounds. So can you speak to facet a little bit for us? Sure, Pete, I'll speak to it, but let me make it as relevant as I can for your listeners. And, and thank you for the question. Uh, I, I want to I want to use facet as a potential example and model for what I would like to see happen in mental health. And just, just so, because I, I don't think the average listener is really that interested in what happens with really complex pharmacotherapy uh, for physical conditions, but I really want to make the point, and this goes back to our earlier conversation in the introduction about taking the money that's already in these benefit plans and putting it somewhere valuable. So in a nutshell, the FASA program is an independent assessment clinically of high cost um, drug claims for, for catastrophic conditions, where normally the insurance company would just be the, you know, sort of saying, yep, great, go ahead and pay for it. Because again, the more money to the plan, the more money they can charge, it's great. Um, and if you're self-insured, the, the, the employer is taking on all the risks. So who wouldn't do it? You know, if you're, a, uh, if you're in a restaurant, this is maybe a bad example to be using in a, in a pandemic era, but you know, the server is probably a lot more excited if you order a $300 bottle of wine, than if you order a $30 bottle of wine, because their, their gratuity is going to be 10 times higher for doing the exact same amount of work. So in the plans that we deal with that, you know, these large high cost claims that go through the plan, if the, if they're self-insured, the insurance company has no financial exposure. They'll just pay the claim all day long because it just adds to the bill and they can charge administrative fees that are based on the, the amount that the plan spent. 
um, not on the actual work that was done. So what we've noticed over the years is that high cost drug claims, just there's no management of them clinically. And we thought, wait a second, there's a lot of use here that's not optimal. So our independent team of clinical pharmacists, they, they use an evidence-based protocol and they'll look at it by the disease. So disease by disease, not drug by drug, because we want to understand what's the underlying, what's the underlying clinical profile of this individual and their disease. And then from there, we want to decide what drug makes the most sense at what dose, where do we get started? And these are people that are dealing with really severe conditions. Um, you're talking about things like MS, uh, rheumatoid arthritis that's, that's progressive, um, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, cancer, refractory asthma, uh, on and on and chronic migraine, on it goes. Um, and so what the model is, say, well, hold on a second. Let's have an independent party that has no financial interest in this claim at all. Let's have someone look at it differently, just a fee-for-service basis. So whether it gets approved or declined or changed, there's no economic incentive to do that. It's just, let's just, let's just judge this claim on its own merit, see what's happening. And let's do it in a member-specific way so that these members can get answers right away. Typically speaking, it can take one to two weeks to get an answer from an insurance company when you're submitting in a claim for a very, very expensive specialty therapy. And in the FACET program, 62% of the time, the answers come the same day and 95% of the time they arrive by the next day. And there's a direct interaction with the specialist and the clinical team to optimize the therapy. But the point of my story is this, when we started doing this work, because we, we noticed that it didn't exist in the insurance industry in Canada, no insurance company had anything like this in play. We said, well, how are we gonna fix this problem if we don't have a solution. So let's put the solution in place because over 70% of the growth in, um, in plan spending on drugs is coming from these high cost claims. So we put it in place and, and we've grown it from there, but here's the part that's really shocking. And this, and for the listeners here that are more, far more interested in the mental health aspect, this is, the, this is the message for you. Two things, five years ago, we started FASTED. So here we are five years later. We have actively had to intervene on 45% of new prior authorization claims for complex therapies. So I'll say that again, because it's incredibly profound. In almost half the cases that we get a new prior authorization claim for a very, very serious therapy for a very serious underlying condition, there's a problem with that therapy. Either that individual, that's not an appropriate therapy for them, and they, they shouldn't clinically be looking at anything specialty, or it's not the right drug, or it's not the right dose. So think about that, Pete, 50, almost 50% of the time, we have to actively intervene to be like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. This isn't, we need, we need, we can do better. Let's, let's, we have to optimize this. Let's get to it. And keep in mind, this is also in the interest of member safety, because we don't have any horses in the race. We're not going to decline a claim for no reason because, or we're not going to require a change to a claim for no reason, because then, then we're putting ourselves on the line, right? There always has to be an evidence-based reason. It can't be, it can't be subjective. It has to be totally objective. So the, so what message to your audience is this half the time there needed to be a second set of eyes to look at this and say, you know what? I don't think this is optimal here. Here's what we need to do to get this claim approved. 
And these are all coming from specialists, right? These are all therapies that come from gastroenterologists, dermatologists, neurologists, um, hepatologists. We're not talking about, you know, coming from a walk-in clinic down the street at 10 o'clock at night. The other take-home message is the average savings that a plan has been able to realize per new claim that's reviewed is just over $13,000 a year. So, so think about that for a second. If a plan has a hundred of these claims a year, then we have to intervene on about 45 of those. But the savings across all of those hundred claims averages about $13,000 a year, which means you've now just freed up $1.3 million worth of resource that can now be allocated to something more necessary. This isn't $1.3 million of money you want to put in your pocket and, you know, and, and, and go to, uh, you know, put it in the Swiss bank account. This is money you want to keep in the plan and put into something more meaningful. So for the mental health related audience here, and this is what you're, you're, you're here for, that's what needs to happen in mental health. You need to have programs to say, well, just a second here, let's understand what the need is. And then let's look at what the right treatment protocol is and let's fund it. Why, why does it make any sense, Pete, to say, hey, you have a $1,000 a year or $500 a year psychological services benefit? Well, why, why would that be the case? Why would you say that's all the benefit you get when for somebody who's maybe having a trouble, maybe they're having some marriage issues or relationship issues, or maybe they're having a bit of financial trouble and they want to speak to somebody, maybe that's enough. Maybe a thousand dollars is great. They can get some counseling. They can speak to people. They can kind of, they can bounce some ideas. They can, they can get centered again. Great. But what if somebody has major depressive disorder? What if somebody has multiple comorbidities that they're dealing with? Um, what if somebody has got, uh, you know, what if somebody's suicidal? Like, what if, what are we dealing with here? Like, we, how is a thousand dollars going to be effective? So how is it appropriate, Pete, that benefit plans have been designed to say, oh, you want, you need a $25,000 drug for your rheumatoid arthritis? Yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. We're not even going to worry about it. Go for it. Yeah, great. We don't care if it's what you should be taking or not, but just, yeah, yeah, you need it. It's a drug. You can have it. How is it that you can write a check for that or for a $50,000 therapy or for a $300,000 cystic fibrosis therapy that may or may not have any clinical benefit? And yet you say to somebody, sorry, there's a thousand bucks, $1,500, $500 of benefit. Now you've reached it. You're on your own. So everybody listening, this is where the money in the system is there to completely redesign mental health care through benefit plans and do it more thoughtfully and more clinically and more and in a more evidence-based way. How is it evidence-based to tell somebody you have a thousand dollars of benefit, uh, go for it, have, have at it and send us in the bill. How does that fix anything? So the, 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 maybe this might, this might be a bit of a stretch, but one of the problems in drug benefits is that there's an incredible amount of lack of adherence to chronic therapy. And if you're not adhering to your blood pressure meds or your cholesterol meds on a regular basis, then you shouldn't be on them. They're not going to have any benefit. So any money that's spent 
filling prescriptions for people who aren't adhering to therapy, you should never have spent that money. You've wasted it. You'd be better served just having them not fill any prescriptions. It's exactly the same thing with mental health. How is giving everybody the same amount of money? How is that fixing problems for people who've got really significant issues? So I'm glad you asked about facet, Pete. But I want to make I want to say to the audience that I want to see facet in its in a different domain in mental health. I want to see something like that in your world where people who are triaged who have significant need aren't capped at what they have and the money is there to pay for it a hundred percent. Mike, thank you so much for uh, extending the facet model into the mental health uh, lens. I think that is probably blowing up people's minds at the moment as they sort of consider that. There's so much to say around this. I really, really strongly agree with your idea of stigma basically around mental illness, right? This is where this is all coming from ultimately, right? Where, yeah, we'll spend 30 grand on this sort of organic physical condition, but yeah, you have major depression. You might uh, end up taking your own life, but you know, here's $1,000 and uh, I hope it all goes well, right? The, the idea that someone's mental illness will constrain itself to the size of the resources available to treat it is just unbelievable. Yeah. It's, so, it's so arbitrary, right? It's not evidence-based. Now, at the same time, I think mental health clinicians need to take a look in the mirror. We've been part of the problem, right? We have been... Uh, we have been giving services in a very one size fits all model, right? We're sort of gold standard where you get once a week of an empirically supported treatment or you get nothing where we are moving to, or where as a practice we're trying to go is this notion of step care, right? Where we have a gradient of intensity across the treatment spectrum, where we map people onto the right step, given what their needs are. Some people do not need to see a clinical psychologist at the rate that we build. They're able to see an, an allied health professional at a lower rate. It makes a lot more sense for them. There's other times too where people need intensive, you know, half day or full day treatments. Those are not going to fall under the thousand dollars a year uh, window, and it really does a disservice to the folks who need uh, who need intensive treatment. So, you know, the classic situation in mental illness is that we are over medicating, over over treating folks who don't need it as much, and we are under treating and under medicating the folks who actually do need. Uh, these intensive treatments. So yes, while the system may be broken, uh, you know, to, to a large extent on the insurance, and I think we as clinicians need to be way more creative about the way that we are structuring our, tr our treatments and not trying to fit people into our one size fits all model, that arbitrary once a week therapy session, we could do so much better on our end as well. I, I think that's a, that's an interesting point. And, and I want to encourage the clinicians who are listening that if you have creative ideas and if you have ways to be able to, uh, to use the existing resources, which I understand are very limited in the demand for mental health services growing and to become more efficient and more effective at every level of intensity, the money is there to fund it. It doesn't have to be found. And that's the biggest misnomer. So let me give you an example. And, and, and I'm looking here at my screen beside me. This is an actual example of an actual employer to September 30th. So two weeks ago, this was the third quarter results from the FACET program for them. So this is managing high cost claims. This is an employer that every listener would know. There are a few thousand employees, they're across the country. Everybody listening would know this name. So they, uh, you know, they've been in a world where they're struggling. Their business is struggling. Their industry is struggling. And so in, 
in order to try to avoid cutting benefits and in order to avoid uh, and to try to have money to be able to invest in the kind of things that we're talking about here now and what you just finished saying, they said, okay, listen, let's, let's, let's give this FASA program a shot. Now, here's the important thing, Pete. This group is unionized, multiple unions. And so there's this perspective that, oh, hang on a second, my plan is unionized or there's a big unionized component to it, so nothing is going to happen there. That is so wrong. Some of the most innovative and forward-looking people we deal with are unions and union plans. Unionized plans, this mentality that, oh, no, they're just, you know, they're just going to want more and more and more and more. And that's complete nonsense. I wish... I wish private sector plans operated with the kind of innovation that a lot of union-based plans operate with. But this group is unionized. It's got management and, and non-union employees and unionized. But here's what I want to, here's, these, are, these are fresh off the press this week. Since we started this program with them, we've reviewed 153 claims. And this group has saved 1 million $932,081. So $1,932,081 of direct savings to them through those interventions, not a single complaint from a plan member, not a single complaint from a specialist or physician. Nobody's health was negatively impacted. In fact, quite the opposite. There, and no one's health and no one was given inferior therapy, quite the opposite. So this, is, this ties back to what you just finished saying. This group now has $1.9 million of plan resources that they didn't unnecessarily spend just by putting their head down and rubber stamping plans and claims, because that's what would have happened here. That $1.9 million, could that not go a long way to fixing what you just said? If once a week meeting with a counselor is not going to do, do it for people in crisis and with much more serious issues, there's a fund of 1.9 million real dollars that can be allocated to people who need it, who are in crisis or who have much more severe issues. Because Pete, what's the sense of having a one size fits all mental health benefit when it's perfectly acceptable, oh, this person over here has hepatitis C. So they get to have a $50,000 drug that the plan will pay for. But this person over here doesn't have that, but, see, but they don't get that $50,000 of benefit. It's no big deal. They, they, there's something else. So somehow it's, been, it's become acceptable to pay for really expensive therapies for some people and not worry about, and not worry about looking at, at equity in the plan for people who have different kinds of needs. But why is it acceptable to say, oh, no, no, listen, we're going to pay for this $50,000 drug because this person really needs it. And you just happen to eat amoxicillin, so don't worry about it just be thankful you're not sick. Uh, why is it acceptable to do that? But it's not acceptable or, or why, but how is it not acceptable to say, oh, wait a second, this person's really struggling. Our plan needs to provide them with far greater resource to handle their mental health issues than what's typically available. And I'm hoping that that story of this employer is going to resonate with people to say, what, what could your listeners do with $1.9 million of benefit? What could the clinicians listening to this conversation, what could they do with that for some of their members? I'm sure all of your colleagues are frustrated to no end dealing with insurance companies, administrative protocols and stuff like that. 
And how about the listeners who are clients of yours or who are, who are members who are not clinicians that are thinking, why did my benefit get cut off when I needed it the most? And there's actually money here, Pete. We just have to find a way to get it back in the system. And that's the challenge, like you rightly said, it's the challenge for clinicians to practice in a different way. And it's a challenge for the plans to say, wait a second, this is such a ridiculous system that we've got. We can change it. And the good news is changing the plan design, that's easy. We need to make sure that the clinicians are practicing the way you're talking about, because that's, that's what's needed. Yeah, Mike, my fear with that is that with an additional pool of money available, there's always the danger that it ends up just funding more activity as opposed to generating better outcomes, right? We don't need a thousand more clinicians just doing what they're already doing. We need the clinicians that exist now to be able to structure the treatment so that it matches the intensity of the presentations that are coming in the door. But there's a bit of a chicken or egg phenomenon, right? Like we would love to be able to have more people, say, for instance, in our intensive treatment program for anxiety disorders. However, to pay for it out of pocket is prohibitive. We need to have the, the uh, partnership with sponsors in order to fund this. So, you know, there's there are those of us who are waiting in the wings to be able to sort of, you know, launch and implement these products. But it's a matter of finding partners on the sponsor side to in order to fund these things because they are expensive. You're dealing with professionals, professional time. Uh, there's a lot of uh, training. There's a lot of oversight. There's a lot of supervision, documentation that goes into the care of someone who's experiencing a mental health crisis. Uh, so, you know, I think there needs to be a process of education around what exactly is needed versus what is not. And then partnering with people in order to deliver these solutions. And again, in a way that is not just more activity, but targeted activity that is going to generate a different kind of outcome. Well, I want this conversation to be as productive as, as possible for your listeners. And what I would say to that is there is an infinite ability to measure outcomes. Let me give you an example for this, this one group that I just told you about, we have access to their prescription drug data, their extended health claims data, which includes all paramedical services um, psychological services, physio, Cairo, you name it, vision, etc., and short-term disability and long-term disability. And all of that data, again, can be completely de-identified, but it can be rolled up and you can trace all of the benefits at an individual's claimant level. Again, all anonymized so that we're not, we're not saying, hey, this is Mike Sullivan over here. And the and so measuring changes like for example changes in the in the frequency and average duration of various different disabilities uh, the reasons for disability uh, looking at overall changes in in member health in terms of uh, days lost uh, productivity loss and stuff like that um, looking at um, enhancements in member adherence to therapy um, looking at reduction in you know uh, comorbid therapies that they might be using or needing and stuff like that all of these elements can be measured in data. I, if I'm being completely candid with you, Pete, I really think most people's fear is they actually don't want to know the answer. They don't really want to know the answer, do they? You know, I, 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 I'm, I might as well, I'm, I'm in this deep, I might as well jump in the pool now. We had, we had stakeholders from the employee assistance program world, employee and family assistance program world, learn about what we were doing many, many years ago around analytics and, 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 and looking deeply into the health of plants. And, and there was some initial flurry of interest. 
oh, wow, that's great. So you guys can measure all this stuff and they want to hear a little bit more. Then when they, you know, and they, they were dancing this, oh, maybe we can partner on X, Y, and Z. And of course, when you're a young business, you'll say yes to anything. So you meet with everybody, you want to show what you're doing and you want to be part of the conversation. You want a seat at the table. Well, something interesting happened. We showed them all the things that we can measure with claims data and all of the information you can reverse engineer that and integrate and enrich and measure. And guess what happened? They all went for the door and we never heard from them again because I think they realized, oh no, these guys can actually measure outcomes and we purport that we do great things, but we probably know at the heart of it, we're not doing that much. And if these guys get their hands on the experience and measure it, they might say, why are we wasting our money on this particular program? This is a complete waste of time. It's the same thing with some of the virtual care and digital mental health um, providers that are out there is that I think they're extremely nervous about the ability for plans to actually measure health outcomes from their services because they probably don't have the kind of confidence in the outcomes that they would purport in their marketing materials. And if they did, then maybe they would be more inclined to go on a performance-based model whereby they're not charging a big upfront per member per month fee. Maybe they're charging to cover some of their costs, but that some of the outcomes will also drive their compensation. And if they can move the needle with health outcomes in a meaningful way, that that becomes part of the conversation. So I really think, Pete, sometimes folks throw their hands up and say, oh, well, you know, nobody's focused on outcomes, nobody's measuring and nobody cares about that stuff. And they're just focused on paperwork and submitting claims. And sure, that might be true to some degree, but I can tell you the ability to measure it's there. The question is, does everybody actually want that to be the case? And do a lot of vendors out there really want that to be the case? And so for the clinicians that sometimes get frustrated, there is a really, really deep way to be able to measure health outcomes on a lot of different levels. And if you're confident that you're making a big difference, trust me, it can be measured. And if it's not measured and it's not, it's not measured and there's the performance isn't documented, then it's lost, right? So uh, I, I would just say the encouraging message there for everybody listening, Pete, is there is a profound way to measure health outcomes. And there's a way to do it very thoughtfully that respects uh, member privacy because you're not using you're not using people's personal health information to do that. Mike, one thing I wanted to get your take on is this idea that mental health is in this unique position where it is it can be really dramatically influenced by the person's workplace, right? So it could be the case that cultural factors within an employer or, you know, a middle management style or a leadership style that might predominate within the organization could actually be contributing to uh, mental health disability, mental health claims, utilization of psychotherapy, medications, things like that. I'm imagining going in and trying to, even if you do everything different differently, you implement a step care model. Uh, you may be fighting headwinds that are very, very difficult to overcome, much like if you have someone who's in a, uh, let's say, like a really bad marriage or an abusive marriage, perhaps. 
you can do all the psychotherapy in the world, but as long as that person is entrenched within that situation, it's very difficult to get a good outcome because their body and brain is rightly responding to a very difficult set of circumstances. So, you know, I guess just for, you know, just a general thought on this, Mike, but, you know, in thinking through this problem, how much do you, how much responsibility or what kind of insight do you think employers may need to build around the contribution that their own corporate or workplace cultures may be contributing to the very problem that they are trying to address? One of my pet peeves is all the virtue signaling that happens with employers that say, oh, look, we've 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 put all of our managers through training and, you know, we really care about workplace mental health and let's talk and all this sort of stuff. Like it's just to me, it's just it's just that it's just virtue signaling. There's no there's there's not a genuine effort to understand the problem. So if you haven't looked at your own experience, how do you know what the problem is? And I'm, trust me, they haven't seen it because it's in nobody's interest to provide them with detailed information to say, well, here are some of your problems because that's not the way this industry works. These benefit plans renew every year and you get very high level superficial information. How much did we spend on psychological services? That's the only thing that somebody sees. They don't see anything about, well, what was the severity of the, of the conditions that were being seen and what happened to these individuals and all the rest of it. Nobody gets that information. Not even the most sophisticated employers in the country get that information. And so, you know, I see all this stuff all the time, you know, well, you know, we're, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. that. That's great. But, it, but if you haven't actually taken the initiative, understand your own problem, then it just comes off as very, very virtuous and, 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 and not very thoughtful and not very substantive. And so I can tell you this, those kinds of things that you just mentioned, which are very interesting considerations and very real, those can also be measured in data because in data, you can start to understand for the individuals going through what, like, what's happening in terms of, are they coming out of specific divisions? Are they coming out of specific geographies? And are we seeing are we seeing different changes? Are there different patterns inside those groups than in other groups inside the workplace? And so, for example, you know, are we actually seeing better adherence to therapy, more appropriate therapy for individuals that have gone through and, and uh, you know, they're, they're, they appear to be following a much more, a much more thoughtful algorithm and then something is breaking down, which doesn't equate to what you're seeing in the claims experience, that could be the first sign that it's actually something that's nothing to do with the individual or health. It could be used to your point, the workplace, for example. But there's lots of ways you can use data to start to get into that and dive into that further. You can start to understand, well, hold on a second. Why does one particular division have a massive disparity in terms of different issues related to mental health, but the physical health um, components of that group are not different than the rest of the group. And those, all that data is there. The answers aren't always easy, Pete, but the data to actually find that stuff out really exists. And so I think it's, it's a very, very thoughtful consideration you brought to the table, but trust me with all the data that exists in these plans, especially in larger plans. And by the way, just for the listeners sake, a lot of this data analysis has to happen in larger plans where you just get more data or you can keep people de-identified and stuff like that. You wouldn't be doing this kind of work in a company of 30 people like Cubic. 
but if that starts to happen in some bigger plants that have the resources to make changes and have the flexibility to make change, like we talked about earlier in the conversation, good things are possible. So all of those points that you that you just made about real hard things to measure around workplace and, 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 you know, and, and culture and stuff like that. I would, what I hope would come out of this podcast, which would make me really, really happy would be if it started a discussion amongst some of your peers about, you know, well, Hey, this is also a concern of mine. And this is a concern of mine too. And how do we deal with this and almost get a laundry list of, is it possible to address these things or measure these different influences or variables in data and start from there. And if that starts a constructive conversation, I think that's how we get to the finish line. And that's why I think it's a good conversation to be having. Mike, I completely agree that all this stuff should be completely accessible to uh, modern measurement tools, right? With all the technology that's available, this should, if Amazon can do what they do, this should be, you know, equally as easy in some ways, right? One of the metaphors that we use for therapy is that it's like turning on the light in a room that's had the lights off so that the person can understand and see what they've been bumping into all this time, right? So the idea is, you know, the person's been stumbling around this dark room, they bump into the furniture, you turn the light on, they're like, oh, that's what I've been banging my shin on. Oh, that's what I've been banging my knee on. You know, the interesting thing with therapy, though, is how often do people actually want to turn on the lights, right? There, there's a lot of scary things that can be illuminated once the lights come on. I do wonder and worry, and not to be too negative, but I do wor worry about the disincentive of turning that light on at a corporate level because it may mean that you had then have to do something about it, right? Ignorance is bliss in some ways. You know, we can live in that self-justifying, cognitive dissonance-reducing kind of way uh, where we can have problems right in front of us, but we can tell ourselves that, hey, we do good things. We have EAP programs. We have ICBT for everybody, uh, but not really look under the hood with any sort of uh, high resolution to see what's going on. That That is a fear of mine, just knowing how humans work and how we're so disincentivized towards dealing with difficult things in, in, in many instances. That's that's very fair. Absolutely. And and I, I think I think the one thing that I would just want to reiterate for the audience is that that the way these benefits have been structured today to try to produce outcomes for people and try to make people healthier, they're arbitrary in their design and they haven't changed in a long, long time. And uh, and, and, and as a result, they're just they're not positioned to deliver effectively moving forward. Are there real concerns from measurement standpoint? Absolutely. I'm not trying to minimize that. Oh yeah, this is easy. Snap your fingers and measure all this stuff. For sure. There are things that have to be worked through, but I think what might be news to the listeners are that is that number one, well, there's a huge amount of data that here that nobody actually looks at. And if you look at it, does that help to figure out ways to overcome some of the structural challenges? And number two, you know what? It's not an issue of money. The money's there. It's an issue of repurposing it and making that money as used as efficiently as possible. If those are the two things that the audience sort of reflects on in this conversation, that is that they can take back to their workplace, take back to their, um, you know, just take back in, in terms of conversations, even from a benefit design, uh, that, that, that's a big win for me, for sure. Or even if it's just people understanding even if it's just individual members listening, saying, you know, why is my plan designed the way this is? I wish I had a more thoughtful answer. The, the reason is it's just, it's, 
it was designed like that 25 years ago and it's never changed. Mike, I really appreciate you bringing up that message again of, you know, the, the money is there. It can just be repurposed. It's a, ma- it's a matter of being creative with respect to the allocation of those resources. Um, I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about, if we can for a moment, short-term and long-term disability, just because that's an issue that's near and dear to the uh, the heart of many clinicians with respect to our day-to-day practice. Many of us are managing the care of clients who are, are applying for short-term disability, they're on short-term disability, or they're about to transition over to long-term disability. There's a lot of murk around how this process works, how the decisions are made, what are the stakes? What what kind of money is on the other side of that bet from the insurance uh, carrier's perspective? You know, like we we harbor a lot of suspicion and cynicism around this. And Mike, I'm wondering if you could maybe, you know, perhaps in a nutshell, tell us a little bit about how that process works and maybe separate fact from fiction uh, just in terms of the mechanics of how these processes go. I think, I mean, this is, you've asked a, a terrific question. We could, we could spend hours just on this question by itself. Um, I would say to you that, So short-term disability is typically a benefit that is almost unique to larger plans uh, because most small employers don't have any meaningful short-term disability. They may just have an absence policy and then there's a a group long-term disability package, but a lot of smaller employers uh, don't have really, really detailed short-term disability provisions. So this tends to be in the domain of self-insured groups and larger plans. And uh, which is great because then there's, then ability to be able to, um, as we talked about, customize. But here's the big problem, and this was news to me as I as I got into this industry, because being an outsider, being a pharmacist, you know, I had to learn this from the ground up. Short-term disability is almost always self-insured. It's not an insured product, but a lot of times the insurance companies will manage the short-term disability because, hey, we're doing the health and dental claims already, and we're doing your long-term disability. Let us do your short-term disability too. It's a great moneymaker for them, but the insurance company doesn't have any risk associated there, right? So again, they'll just kind of rubber stamp a claim. They might get paid a fixed fee to look at a case and they'll just say, yeah, okay, let's see the treatment plan. Let's see this. Let's do this. Let's have a couple of calls. Boom, rubber stamp, off you go. And then we'll come knocking when you get to the end of that short-term period, which is different for every employer, how they define it before long-term disability starts. So there's really no incentive for an insurance company or even from a a carved out disability management provider who's getting paid a flat fee, what's their incentive to grind harder to look at these things if if they don't get paid anymore? Uh, And if no one's actually measuring the outcomes, if no one's measuring these outcomes, what's their incentive to work any harder? They just wanna again, yeah, we're doing this, we're touching base with people, let's make sure everyone's happy. Let's make sure there's no noise. The other problem though, in fairness to the service providers is that I've heard horror story cases of disability case managers who are managing two times their normal caseload because there's huge turnover in that space. It's a very difficult job. I don't want to minimize it at all. It's not easy to do it well. And really, really solid disability case managers are worth their weight in gold. Um, and so, we're, and, and of course, we're seeing as a, there's a big push for quote unquote efficiencies. And so you're seeing a lot of layoffs happening in the insurance world in areas where they try to automate things and, and lay off people. So you're seeing these huge increases in caseload. So in fairness, these people, how are they supposed to manage these things any differently, right? They have to do more with less. So on the short-term disability side, 
it's a massive problem uh, because like the, the, the model is completely broken. Everybody managing these claims has no vested interest in the outcomes and the, and the economic th- and their compensation isn't tied to any kind of outcome. That's a, first and foremost, a big issue. So short-term disability management is kind of a joke to be t- completely honest. It's a, and it's a big joke when you're the carrier because then the claim transitions over to long-term disability. And here's where it gets interesting. The thinking is that, oh, well, an insurance company doesn't want to have long-term disability cases because that's bad for them. They, you know, they got to make reserves and fund claims. But no, that's not, that's an oversimplified view of it. Insurance companies have to have disability claims. Otherwise, how do they justify fee uh, premium increases? They can't justify it if nobody makes claims, right? If they all get resolved, they can't have these people come on. But isn't it curious, though? that these claims all happen to get resolved once they're on long-term disability and right before they get to the end of the own occupation part of it, before they get to any occupation, then magically some things start to change. Or if a, if a carrier is faced with a, you know, a, a very expensive potential long-term claim, then they'll kind of dig in their heels and start to fight it then. But nobody used that kind of, you know, any kind of lens of, of deep assessment of a claim earlier on. So the problem, Pete, again, this sounds so cynical. I, I'm listening to myself saying this, people saying, wow, Pete, Mike, you guys must be real fun to hang around with. You're sitting there, you know, we, <laughs> at the table, we must be really, really sour guys to hang around with. Uh, but in reality, the problem is disability management, like all these other benefits, has really been overtaken by financial interests. And, and so these claims are not optimized. and and. That's why that there's so such an enormous room for effort. The other problem too, Pete, the people managing disability claims do not always have access to the claims information. So there's not even a mechanism for them to validate what's happening with this member. They have to go based on what they've received from a physician, um, which may or may not be accurate, right? So there's so many structural problems, but I guess my message to the group, mindful of time, because we could talk about this for hours, is that unfortunately, disability management has become overrun with economic incentives and health is not at the top of the list. It's just, it's just not. Mike, do you feel that increasingly at the level of perhaps the sponsor that there is a humanitarian case that can be made? Does, does that move the needle at all? I, I really put a lot of blame on the, on the feet of large plants. These large plans have the power to say to their vendors, including their insurance carriers, you're going to do this this way or we're not doing business with you. This is what we want to see. This is how we want things managed. We'd love your input about how to do this, but we really want to be involved in this. We want to make sure the investments we're making in people's mental and physical health are appropriate and they're producing a return because we want these things to be sustainable. But these are not conversations most large plans have. They just put their head in the sand. They outsource the annual renewal to an advisor who's just incented to get back in the wheel and do things the way it's always been done. And nothing changes. So I really put a lot of blame at the feet of large plans that haven't used their market power to their benefit. And where else do you see that happening? You don't see that happen anywhere else. Like these large employers grind their office coffee vendors 
for the lowest cost, right? Like, like they use their bargaining power to buy computer paper. Um, they, you know, they, they, like they do all this stuff, but they somehow just have this massive blind spot for benefits. They don't want to go anywhere near it. And that's a huge issue, Pete. And so I think we have to be really thoughtful and say, just a second, let's throw the playbook out and let's start new. And I guess that's my hopeful message for the audience too, is that if you throw the playbook out and start new, you're not losing anything. It's possible to do. And I think we need to do it for that matter. And so I, I, and I, I honestly believe for large plans, they really, really need to be more thoughtful about they are not doing their employees and their plan members any favors by being so passive. They're actually negatively impacting people's health doing it that way. And I want to go back to what I said before. It's why I think some unionized plans are some of the most progressive and innovative because unions are there for their members. It's a brotherhood and a sisterhood. They want to, they, they want to, they, they want to do what's right for not just this generation of their, of their union members, but the next generation thereafter. And honestly, that mentality of doing the right thing for their members has actually helped them develop the most innovative plans that allow them to do the right thing. And I really think some of these virtual sig virtue signaling organizations that say, hey, great, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to give you this extra benefit uh, for, you know, mental health, but they're not actually fundamentally looking at the structure of it, or they're not trying to really address deeper concerns. They're not doing anybody any favors. It's just, it's just lip service. You know, Mike, if you could design a large plan from the ground up, right, you had the opportunity to start it from time horizon zero, what would be maybe some of the principles that you would want to bake into the de development of that uh, plan? And, and what would be some of the maintenance principles that you would integrate into it? I'll caveat my answer by saying, uh, let me focus on large plans, on self-insured plans. And that's actually, I think, a lot it probably is relevant to a lot more people than one might think, because even if you work in a smaller organization or a smaller business, you may have a partner that works in, in a larger organization for a larger plan. Like for example, you're in Ottawa, the vast majority of people in that city have one person in the family who's employed by the federal government. Um, and so, you know, most people in the Ottawa area will have access to benefits through I'm just using Ottawa as a good example, just so the listeners can think about it from their own domain. But if you think about it, how many people would have benefits covered by the federal public service, by the University of Ottawa, by Carleton, by the Ottawa hospitals, uh, you know, these massive, massive, uh, by the, uh, the school boards, um, you know, so the, the EDFO, OSSTF, um, it, the public sector funding of benefits in Ottawa probably impacts a very, very huge percentage of households. So one partner may have access to these benefits or both. But let me focus my answer on large plans because this is where the flexibility is easier. If, if starting with a blank slate, the first thing I would realize is 80% of my members are using less than $200 a year of drug benefit. 70% uh, of my members are using less than $250 a year of of uh, paramedical services, including psychological services. The vast majority of people on my plan are just 
tourist consumers. You know, they're 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 not on long term medication. Maybe they haven't gotten to the point of needing um, a lot of counseling or therapy. Uh, you know, they're using massage therapy maybe more. Uh, instead of therapeutically, maybe it's just more just because it's enjoyable and that kind of stuff, as opposed to, you know, the result of chronic pain or something. Um, so most people don't use their benefits too profoundly. Um, and that's the first thing I would realize is that benefits are important because it's tax efficient compensation. You don't have to pay tax on what you receive, but the benefits should be tied back to what insurance is really made for. And that is for things that we didn't see coming. So I would want to design my plan to say, how do we make sure we're being as efficient as we can, recognizing that the vast, vast majority of individuals and families are not going to be, are not going to have very deep need um, from, a, uh, from a health perspective. And I would say from there, how do we ensure that people who have very significant age-related chronic conditions, significant um, genetic-based disorders, metabolic issues, um, autoimmune conditions. Uh, what can we do for them? How do we want to structure the benefit for people who have substantial mental health concerns, uh, whether that be psychoses, mood disorder-related, uh, whatever it happens to be, we're going to have to have money ready for these people to be able to intervene more substantially if something happens, if somebody's got an addictive issue, uh, et cetera, et cetera. How are we gonna handle it there? So what I would design my plan is to realize, instead of putting so much effort on what should my caps be for massage therapy and what should my caps be for acupuncture and how what's my recall schedule for dental cleaning and scaling units, and, you know, what should my dispensing fee maximum be in my drug plan and all this nonsense that's irrelevant. I would say, let's focus on building out offerings and funding it for people who are going to be in crisis because that's what they need these benefits for. And that's going to have the most profound impact on economic impact on the employer. If you can help individuals and families that are in crisis or with really significant needs that will produce the most substantial return to your organization. And that produces the greatest health benefit to these individuals. And I would wanna be looking at it that way. We look at it exactly the wrong way. We're like, well, what does the average person want for their benefits? We're humans, we just want everything. We wanna have unlimited massage. We wanna have unlimited this. Like, why, why would you ask people that? And more importantly, we're humans. We understand that None of us want to be diagnosed with cancer. None of us want to have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Nobody wants to have a child with a, um, you know, a genetic disorder. Nobody wants to be in mental health crisis. You know, I, uh, as a personal story, a very, very close advisor of ours at Cubit, uh, his 20-year-old his son has been through the ringer with um, psychosis related issues that have sort of just emerged in the recent years um, and watching how challenging that's been on a business owner and a very smart person and on their family and on that business, just watching their, their son struggle so profoundly with mental health and struggle so profoundly finding solutions that you realize hey, we have to be ready for those cases day one 
not flail around and figure out what to do with it when it actually happens. I don't know if I've answered your question thoughtfully, but I would flip it on its head. Let's focus on where we can make the biggest impact and the rest will, the rest will follow. I absolutely love the ethos that you built into that answer, Mike. And it really mirrors my experience as a clinician where when you see people come in, you want to see them at the at the beginning of their trajectory, right? Like that first episode of depression. Because what happens is once a crisis happens, it becomes infinitely easier for other crises to start to accumulate around that initial crisis, right? So you've got that initial episode of depression, then it's going to lead to problems with respect to their marriage. Maybe then it's going to lead to problems with respect to employment or custody access issues, throw in an addiction, throw in a chronic illness. And all of a sudden now you have someone where you've got four or five pillars of their life that are shaky and on shaky ground. And it, that is way harder to treat than if you are dealing you know, with the crisis as it initially presents and then just cutting it off at the knees right away. So I, I love the flexibility and the targeted approach that you're talking about here where we want to get in right away, address these crises effectively and efficiently to prevent all those downstream accumulation uh, of problems. So certainly that's what I heard. I'm not sure if I projected onto your answer, but that's certainly what I heard in the uh, ethos that you were speaking to there. And I hate to bring you hundred percent did. And I hate to bring this back to dollars and cents all the time. It sounds so crass, but that example, the story I gave with the mental health crisis, that that's an individual who runs a business that employs about a hundred professionals. This is an individual that if they are profoundly distracted and, and overwhelmed dealing with this, it has impacts on the business. It has impacts on dozens of other families, right? Um, and so that's really what we lose sight of sometimes is that, yes, we have to deal with people's health and, and, and people in crisis 100%. And that's, I think, what you're speaking to. But if you want to take a very cold, hard look as to what's the economic reason to do it so that these things actually get funded and stay funded is that because think about what, think about that example about what it means to that organization. If, if there's not access to the services that are needed and, and the resources are not there to provide it. And what happens if that's not the CEO of the company that's dealing with it? What if it happens to somebody who's dealing with it, who's, um, you know, a lower level employee with less financial resource and things like that. Right. So, there's, there's such a massive opportunity. I'm so hopeful for the future because Pete, the, 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 the sophistication of these plans today is, is literally kindergarten. It's, they're so useless. The, the opportunity, like this is, this is like, this is like doing high jump at the Olympics when the bar is about six inches off the ground. You feel like it's not that hard, right? You feel like you, you feel like improvement is a hundred percent straightforward and easy to do. So I, I think that to me, it's a very hopeful conversation, but it's one that needs to be more urgent, right? There needs, needs to be, there needs to be more focus paid to it and maybe just more questioning about the status quo. Well, Mike, listen, thanks for all your insights on the insurance industry. I, again, I hope the listener has found it as absolutely fascinating as I have over the years uh, having these chats with you. You know, I've known you for a very long time. Uh, you're one of the most extraordinary, interesting guys I know. And I didn't want to let you go without maybe getting your insight in a couple of personal questions. And I think the, uh, the audience would likewise find it really interesting to get your answers to these. You know, you mentioned Cubic is a, uh, a company that you've built from the ground up with, uh, with some partners 
From, you know, Mike, from an identity perspective, how do you manage the line between where Mike Sullivan ends and, and Cubic begins? Is there even a line, right? And this is informed by looking at the development of companies like Apple, where you've got like a Steve Jobs who's at the helm, and it's kind of indistinguishable between, or the line between where Apple ends and Steve Jobs begins is sort of indistinguishable. So as the company grows, Mike, like how do you manage those identity-related issues, uh, knowing that you you probably don't want all of your happiness or contentedness uh, hanging on the future of Cubic or what happens with Cubic on a day-to-day basis? Well, I'm really humbled by your comments, Pete. Sincerely, thank you for that. Um, I, I would I would say that, and you know this as well, being involved in a business, when you go at it your own, there's one big downside that people don't talk about. And that is, um, they don't talk about the fact that once you get on this path, it is very hard to get out of it, right? That it's hard to go back to the way you were and you have to be prepared for the boundaries of your life to effectively be eroded. And that's not always a bad thing, right? If you're working in a job where you can punch in and punch out and you don't have to think about work when you leave, for some people, they love that because they have other passions that they want to do that have nothing to do with work. And they love being able to punch out at 459 and, and never think about it again. But for me, I, I love the, I love the, the, the challenge of, of, of what every day brings. So I don't have a problem with the boundaries being eroded. Um, and the biggest reason why is, as you know, I was kind of late to the game getting started having a family. Um, and so, you know, my kids are almost seven and, and almost five. And I love the idea of being able to, as I parent them, to be able to, to show them that it's not just me talking, but there's action behind it too. So that if they want to do things in their life that are different, that I can say, listen, this is what I've done. You don't have to follow this path by any stretch, but, but I can at least lead by example. So I'm not just, you know, a talking head. Um, and, and so I actually kind of enjoy that there isn't a big boundary between it because I like to, I like my kids to understand what I'm doing. I like them to see this environment. I think it's going to make me a better parent. And the only thing that really matters to me is what happens to those kids, what the legacy is down the road. Um, you know, that, you know, what, what are they going to be able to do? And so I actually think being in this position is really beneficial because it just allows me to, it allows me to talk the talk and walk the walk and, and they can learn from my mistakes and learn from some of the things I do, you know, I, I, that, 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 that turned out to be um, positive too. So I, I think it's all good. I don't, I don't really concern myself with it, but I will tell you though, Pete, that once you get down this path, it's hard to, <laughs> you, you have to, you have to be willing to make those sacrifices. Well, speaking of that, you know, Cubic is a growing company. You have a number of talented professional employees, you know, with, with their own mortgages, families, uh, concerns, children, what have you found to be an effective coping strategy for managing the weight of that responsibility? You know, if you perceive it as a weight, in fact. I do. I absolutely perceive it as a weight. Uh, one, of, one of our longest tenured um, staff who started with us right out of school, um, fantastically talented person, um, just bought a home here in Toronto uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he, he told me about it. And, you know, this is not an easy market to be buying houses in. Uh, and, uh, and I was so thrilled and he's been looking for so long and, and uh, he's got a bright future ahead of him and, um, and he and his partner, and I'm, I'm just thrilled for them. And, but you start to think, Hey, listen, we got to do this, right? Like when the pandemic hit, my first thought was, Hey, I, I hope nothing has to change because I, I'm so grateful that we didn't have to, we didn't have to impact anybody's compensation or employment. 
that's my that's my proudest moment of 2020 is that we were able to, to you know to continue doing our thing and, and and I'm so grateful for that and so grateful for the the people we work with and that that allow that to happen. So it's a huge weight, um, but I I don't know if I have entirely found a coping strategy to be honest, Pete. I would say that I have learned recently that I need to find and do a better job of curating a network of people who are in a similar situation, who can kind of understand, um, you know, what it's like to, uh, you know, what it's like to go through that. Because you and I have had this conversation before, and I throw this out for other people that run businesses that might be listening. I would say my biggest disappointment, and I've never talked about this openly with you, Pete, to this level, but I think my biggest disappointment has been that when you start a business and you're bootstrapping it and eating beans for three years and ramen noodles, everybody's cheering you on. It's a lot of people I think secretly think it's not going to go very well. And, and they're sort of, they're sort of what kind of almost want to watch the car accident happen, Um, you know, and rubberneck when you're driving by the accident scene in the highway. But then if the business becomes a going concern, it's incredible how few people actually ask you about it over time. And you start to feel a bit isolated. There's very few friends in my life, and you're one of the exceptions, that really have genuinely cared and asked questions over the years about what's happening with Cubic. Because I think there's, they, I don't know what it is. I guess we could sort of speculate for a while, but it becomes a bit isolating because then they can't really appreciate some of, uh, you know, some of the shared challenges. And then some of the struggles that you do have, because not every day is roses, it's nice when you're speaking to other people own businesses to say, yeah, I've got the same thing. And we've got a mutual friend, Rob, um, that, uh, that I love connecting with him and, and sharing stories about business because he deals with some of the same challenges that I do. And it makes me, you know, it makes me, it reassures me that um, I'm not alone. Uh, but I, I haven't really found a good way to cope other than to try to try to find people in a similar circumstance and realize that, Hey, nobody's got this all figured out either. Those are such great points, Mike. And I think, you know, we see this all the time clinically where if somebody self-identifies as being successful and they see somebody else that comes along and eclipses them in some aspect that is meaningful to them, it's going to be a threat, right? They're like, hey, Mike Sullivan's knocking out of the park. What does that mean for me? Does that mean I'm defective? So you become a threat. So they have to push you away, right? We, you know, we've had discussions about this at more of a a, sort of a personal level, but, um, and, and just on the social support piece, that is the most effective coping strategy, right? And we know that the people most positioned to uh, support us effectively are those who are going through the same thing. So I, I really applaud your effort to reach out and build that network. Not everybody is going to have the kind of problems that one would have in your position as CEO and president of a company. That's a very unique station in life. There's not going to be a lot of folks who will share that lens or, or the, the weight of some of the problems. I would say the other thing that's really become apparent is this, the business helps you focus your personal life. And, you know, this this era of Facebook and Instagram where the game is trying to get as many friends as possible and, and feel like you're part of a massive community. I think what this what, what going through the journey you realize is this helps you really figure out who your friends are and who you can lean on um, and who really is in your back, who's in the background cheering for you and who's there when you need a lift. Uh, and who's there to keep you in line too, uh, and, and and make sure that you can stay as humble as possible, um, and and not get carried away with some of your thinking. And so I I, I actually and this again it goes back to some of the some of the lessons I hope to impart on my kids, which is success in life isn't having the most friends. 
success in life is having people around you that, that are there for you. That You cultivate those friendships and those relationships who people really genuinely care. And I think the one thing in the pandemic that um, this is recognized is that, you know, we can't let, you know, physical separation, that, that can't be a reason to lose touch with, you know, with people that you have to harvest and you have to continue to, to nurture those relationships. But boy, um, you really appreciate how you really appreciate the people who are, who, who make you better. And that's not going to be a huge number of people in your life. And that's great. That's, that's the way it should be. Right. I really like that saying you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I really think that that there's, there's, you know, those qualities are contagious when you're around those folks. And Mike, I'd also say on a personal level, I mean, one of the things that I, you know, I think is so fantastic about you is that despite all the amazing things that have happened, you're the same guy I know since grade two, right? Not, not, not a lot has changed interpersonally. And I think that's just such a wonderful thing, both for you personally, but also to model for your children as well. I think, I think that's great. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I, uh, you know what, at the end of the day, especially as we get to the age that we're getting to, you, you just start to realize that uh, you've got to enjoy every moment you can and not get too carried away with it. Um, and that's why I think the conversations like this today, just, just absolutely, there's no negativity included with it. It's all very hopeful, but you know, I'm excited by the idea that we can make some changes in mental health and how mental health is offered to people. Um, and that making change is going to be easy, but it's sure possible, right? And let's let's get the conversation going. So, um, so I, just, I, I appreciate I appreciate what you said. Thank you for that, Mike. I'm fascinated to get your answer to this. What in your professional career have you been the most wrong about? That's a really good question. I'm not sure I have something that jumps out. That I mean, I've been wrong on a lot of things. So this isn't me trying to figure out when I was wrong. I'm wrong all the time. I think what I was wrong about was that. If you want to build a workplace, you know, when Chris and I sat down to, um, to sketch out what we want a cubic to be um, about 17 years ago, you know, we, we kind of thought that you just surround yourself with really, really talented people. And then, the, you know, the higher tide just lifts everybody. It's going to be great. And you kind of think that, that that's what everybody is looking for. And what I've come to appreciate is that that's not the case. There's a lot of people that are not looking for that in a workplace. Um, and, and you have to adjust your expectations accordingly and you have to realize, okay, I guess that that's fine. Um, but I really thought, you know, that it would be so easy to bring in and, and, and work with and grow with, you know, people and everybody would have a shared sort of idea that, Hey, how do we find problems and solve them and dive into them and, and all the rest of it. But, you know, that hasn't, really been the case at all you, you sure you have exceptional people but it's remarkable um to see it's remarkable to see that that's that's really not what a lot of people aspire to and i'm reminded of that every time we hire for a position and you see the kind of responses you get and you see the approach that people put into seeking something different it's just robotic and it's not very tailored and it's it's just interesting i would say I would say that I thought most people were looking for something very different in their professional life. And that has not proven to necessarily be the case. Well, can you imagine what Cuba w would be like if there's 30 Mike Sullivan's in it? Being an intolerable work. <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I think, I think it's also just helped you realize that, help me realize that, you know what, everyone's got a different, you know, a different compass and things like that. But, but you know, the thing that saddens me, I think with that Pete is that 
I'm not asking people to work 80 hour weeks and I'm not asking people to grind and, 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 and give up their lives. But what, what saddens me is that I think if people realized if they took a little bit more initiative in their careers, especially early on, and were sort of willing to kind of, I don't know, quote unquote, pay their dues in terms of learning and, and, and just kind of trying to, I, when I started my career, I was doing three or four jobs at the same time all the time to try to, you know, turbocharge my experience and figure out which direction I wanted to go in. I, I, I just, I wish there was a little bit more front end effort people would be putting into them because I think their happiness personally and professionally would be very different. But there's a lot of people in this world and we've got a great team here. So I'm not speaking so much just internally here at Cubic, but there's a lot of people in this world, Pete, that they think the tooth fairy is going to come and give them progressively greater responsibility, but not too much. And, you know, a greater compensation and greater, you know, all this other sort of stuff, but there's really no additional effort that has to be put in or effort made. And I think people would just be this whole conversation is around mental health. And I think people would be so much happier in their place in life if there was a little bit more initiative put in to nurturing and growing themselves professionally because that can have profound benefits personally down the road as well and i just again it's one of the things i want to instill in my kids is that if you take that initiative and you put your head down and and, and do things and experience different things and you take that initiative i think the world is going to change for you and it's going to be so much better um, personally and professionally. Mike, I totally agree. And I think one thing that I end up saying to a lot of my younger clients, especially is that if you want to stand out in your workplace, the easiest thing to do is just to do what you say you're going to do. 100%. That alone will separate you from 85% of people instantaneously. That one little simple thing of just doing what you say you're committing to do. I could not agree more with that. That is beautifully said. Uh, Mike, just a couple more questions for you here, then I'll, I'll let you go. How would you describe your leadership style? Like, you know, what and what do you think works within that style? And what have you discovered is perhaps less effective? I would say the number one thing is giving people autonomy. And, uh, and, and, and when you start a business, as we did, you're, you do everything in the first, the, the early stage of the business. You're literally doing everything because there's nobody else to do it. And so sometimes it's hard to give up control and because you're so used to doing things a certain way. And I think kind of realizing, no, actually, by giving up control, we're better because there's a lot of bright people who've got far better ideas than I do um, and far different skills to actually make them happen. And so I think giving autonomy is a big part of it and realizing that it may not be exactly the way I would have gone about doing it, but it's probably better as a result. Um, and just, re and just being comfortable with that and being like, yeah, actually it's much better. So that's fantastic. So I think that's part of it. I also think Pete, the number one thing is if you're not leading by example, no one's going to buy it. I don't understand these businesses where the owners are, you know, you know, showing up half the time and checked out and not, you know, not doing anything. I want everyone to see that, that I want to be, you know, the cliche in sports, the first, the first on the field and the last one off or the, you know, that I don't know, just mean in terms of time, but I want everyone to know that, you know, I, I want to, if someone's saying, you know, who, 
does, does he take any days off? Is he just checked out? I want the answer to be no. He's always, he's always there. He's always focused. He's, you know, I just think leading by example is so, so important because there's a lot of businesses where, you know, the leaders will say something that sounds really good, but they don't actually back it up and they don't do the work and they're not, they're not authentic. Right. So, um, and I also a hundred percent share my shortcomings with the group as well. So that I feel if I'm sharing my shortcomings and some of the things I've done wrong, that they will feel comfortable being like, Hey, listen, you know, I, I can, and I ask your opinion about this or, Hey, this didn't work so well with me either. Right. So if they see that, you make just as many mistakes as they do. I think everyone kind of buys in and says, okay, I, I, you know, I don't have to pretend to always have the right answer. I think that's so helpful for employees or in my case, clinical supervisees, right? Where I try to be really transparent around where my struggles have been, where the foibles are, because that's, I think it reduces their anxiety about talking about it. And it's through talking about it that you get improvement and solutions that are derived. So if you, if you can't measure it, you know, through conversation, you, you won't, certainly won't be able to manage it. Yeah. And Mike, one last question for you here. Um, you know, do you have any books that you would recommend to the listener from the perspective of leadership or personal growth or, you know, just sort of just insights in general that have been helpful for you? Oh boy. Yeah, I, I certainly do. Um, there's so many good books. I actually, you know, it's become a bit of a problem, Pete, because I, I don't really read any fiction anymore because there's so much interesting stuff, nonfiction I want to read that I really haven't gotten into fiction. There's some great fiction out there, but I just, you know, the only ones I get are the ones I read to my kids. Uh, and, and I've read enough about dragons to hold me on for a long time. Um, to answer your question, uh, you know, one of the books that, I, that has been hugely, hugely helpful for me is uh, something called The Hard Thing About Hard Things uh, by Ben Horowitz. That's a fantastic book about starting businesses and, you know, not always having the right, the right ideas. Um, Zero to One, a book by Peter Thiel, I think is really interesting in terms of this goes back to this industry that we're in where, Everything is just doing what it was before. There's no, there's no thinking about how to, how to really transform, you know, what's happening underneath it. And then there's some, some of the, you know, some of the books that are just common sense that are classics, like the Dale Carnegie books, like um, those are things like they're so, they're so, you know, really, really impactful. And uh, you know, thinking about books like um, Influence. Right, Robert Cialdini, like books like that, that are, you know, everyone would put on their list of, of, of classics. You know, it's funny, it's, you know, we just, we, we, we think of nonfiction in different terms and fiction, right? Like fiction's got its classics, but there really are just classic books that everybody needs to be reading um, in the nonfiction category. And I would put some of those right at the top of the list for sure. Uh, and there probably would be on everyone's, everyone's list, like, you know, Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That's not a very creative answer, but I mean, you can't, you just can't argue with the, the sound advice that, that, that's in some of those books. So I also found that I like to go back and, and, and reread some of these books on, on somewhat regular basis because they're, they're fairly easy to digest and go through it. Um, so yeah, I would say, yeah, you know, How to Influence, Friends and Influence People by Carnegie, um, Influenced by Gildini, Zero to One, uh, books like that. Uh, uh, again, by no means off the uh, off some list of obscure, uh, but I just it's uh, yeah they're great. And you know what? The other thing is too. I'm so I'm I'm so glad that podcasting is becoming such a more robust um, form of media now. It's been so nice to see the evolution. It's nice to get long form 
um, you know, journalism or, 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 you know, uh, or interview and stuff like that. And, and so I, I, I'm really excited to see how um, the, the world of, you know, podcasting is really, really changing and transforming. And that's great. So yeah, those are some of the books I go to Pete. I, I wish they were maybe more creative, but uh, more creative suggestions, but uh, that's uh, I, I enjoy it. Well, thanks for those recommendations, Mike. Uh, I'm no stranger to some of those books and they are indeed super helpful. I'll throw another one in the mix too. It would be very much aligned with our conversation today would be uh, Radical Candor. Uh, I, I forget the author's name. Uh, she worked at, I believe, both Apple and Google at one point, a very accomplished uh, businesswoman. And uh, it's a really, really great take on uh, interacting with employees and, and sort of cultivating a management style. Mike, listen, I can't thank you enough for the uh, time that you've donated to the podcast today. What an amazing conversation from my perspective. I'm quite sure that's shared by the listener. I really, really want to thank you for all your insights on insurance and especially the really, really, I think, innovative and fascinating insights with respect to the mental health implications of some of the innovations that could take place. I'm sure that will be right in the wheelhouse and of interest to, to everyone who's listening. So thank you so much for that. Pete, listen, this is a cliche that gets used time and time again, but genuinely speaking, this has been a massive massive pleasure and a privilege and a real honor to be invited. And I just, uh, you know, just thinking about this, having this conversation, it's just, it's, it's, it's so, it's so nice to think that, you know, these conversations that we've been having over years about these topics, you know, they're very relevant. And, and I think the urgency for some of the change is greater now than ever before. So listen, I'm thrilled. I hope, uh, I hope anybody in the audience listening, if they got even one or two things out of this that were new information or some new insights, that's great. And I certainly want to make the offer as well. If anybody does reach out to you through the podcast um, and wants and has a question or wants to say something through, I'm more than happy uh, to address it. So uh, I want to make sure that if anybody has something burning, that there's there's an outlet for me to answer the question. So if they want to if they want to push anything through you and you want to forward along, please by any by any stretch. And if there's anything down the road that that maybe you want to dive into in in more depth, more specifically. Uh, I'd love to do it. Thanks for having me. This has been a huge, huge, uh, a, 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 a great way to wrap up a week and uh, a real honor to be here, Pete. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, thanks so much. Mike, if people are interested in the Cubic story or they, they're interested in, in what Cubic does, where can they find you? Email at msullivan at cubic.ca is the easiest way to get a hold of me at any point in time. If they've got questions, if they want to reach out and, and get some clarification, fire me off an email and just mention the, uh, mention the podcast and, and we can go from there. That's probably the best. Uh, yeah. It's be far more engaging than uh, our Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> again, Mike, thank you so much. Listen, enjoy the end of your week and uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. You bet. Thanks again, Pete. I appreciate this. No worries. Talk soon. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. 
No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.